If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Philippians chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, uh, as we all once were, uh, you can look at the table of contents. It'll be the beginning. If you need a Bible, feel free, uh, stand up, walk to the back. Our ushers have some available for you. If you don't have a Bible, you can keep that. Um, We are just really glad that you're here uh, joining us this morning. If you've been around for the last uh, couple weeks and couple months, you'll know that uh, we have been in a series on the Gospel of Matthew. And over the last few weeks, we've been in a series, uh, our Advent series, our Christmas series. So we're in a couple weeks transition here uh, as we launch into a new series here uh, in beginning of January. So I have the privilege, the pleasure uh, of sharing something that's just really been on my heart over the last couple years, really, something I've been praying through, learning in my own discipleship to Jesus. Uh, and I trust by God's grace through the power of the Spirit, it'll, it'll be an encouragement to you as we uh, seek to make Jesus known uh, here in Vancouver. So uh, this morning... As I said, Philippians chapter 3, I want to speak from the subject of garbage and gain. Garbage and gain. So that'll make more sense as we uh, carry on here. But Philippians chapter 3, start reading uh, with me. Look down. We're going to pick it up halfway through verse 4. Philippians 3, starting in verse 4. Paul writes this. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Uh, Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, uh, I pray that you would meet us uh, this morning as we gather, as we uh, seek to realign our hearts and our minds and our lives with uh, your goodness, your grace, and your vision uh, for seeing your kingdom come here to Vancouver as it is in heaven. So Holy Spirit, I pray uh, that you would move in our hearts and our minds, that you'd help us to see Jesus, his goodness, his grace, his mercy over us, And that we would uh, seek to make him known as we scatter from here. So Jesus, uh, it's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Well, never in my life had I cared more about my resume than when I first moved to Vancouver. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, don't know my story, uh, about two and a half years ago, uh, my wife Nicole and I, we were living in Florida. Uh, We were teaching, both teaching at a Christian school. Uh, We had no kids. We were working at the same place, nights, weekends off, summers off. We were in sunny, suburban St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, and for some reason, God in his wisdom decided to call us from that to Canada. 
so I didn't know anyone in Canada. Uh, I don't have any family up here. I don't, didn't have any friends up here. I had no connections. Uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania. My wife grew up in Florida. And it was an incredible story, just like dripping with God's grace. Uh, you can maybe buy me lunch sometime, and I'll, I'll share it with you. <laughs> Uh, but we, we felt God's call to move here to start the youth ministry of Westside. So as those conversations began and, and the phone interviews started and the emails started to fly, I realized I need to update my resume. Uh, so I did what anyone in that position looking for a job does, is, is you rack your mind thinking through, okay, what have I accomplished what have I done? What's going to make me look good? What's going to give me a sense of success when the elders and the government read this resume? Are they going to look at me and say, all right, this guy's legit. He's got his whatever. He's, he's been to school. He knows what he's doing. He's the man for the job. So I sat down. I, I racked my mind for anything and everything that I'd ever done. So I put down that I was a pastor in other ministries. I've preached at youth conferences. Uh, I had my undergrad in youth ministry. I went to seminary for uh, my Master of Divinity. Like, you name it, I put it on my resume because I knew that as I drove up to the border and the, the border guy there gave my passport, oh, where do you live? Oh, I live in Florida, but Jesus has called me to Vancouver. So can I have a work visa? Uh, that's not going to fly, right? I need, I need some sort of documents, a way to verify who I am, what I've done, uh, and what confidence I have in myself. I was trying so hard to prove myself because I knew that my background alone wasn't enough to get me this job. I needed a verified source. Now, how many of us find ourselves acting the same way with God? If you're anything like me, uh, sometimes you can see God maybe as, as a border guard uh, and, and you walk up to him, maybe you have a request, maybe you're praying for something uh, and his response is not grace and love and, and yeah, mercy. It's, all right, what have you done? What's your education? What's your background, your behavior? What are those things that you have done? What are the things that you haven't done? Can you give me sort of a religious resume as to why, should, not only should I save you, but I should give you grace. What makes you so special? Well, our passage for this morning sheds light on this lie that we can earn or do anything to have a right relationship with God, and it shows us what it means to be saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus for us and the implications of living in that gospel identity. So Philippians chapter 3, uh, we're dropping in mid-letter here as Paul is writing to this church community in the city of Philippi. So over the first two chapters, Paul really has laid out uh, a, a theology, a framework for who Jesus is, what he's done, the good news of the gospel, and then how we should respond to that. So as we come to chapter 3, Paul is saying to this church community, very similar to ours, hey, watch out for those in the church who would say, your faith in Jesus is great, but there's actually more that you need to do in order for God to be happy with you, in order for you to be accepted, loved. There's, there's actually more things to do, like faith in Jesus, awesome, but there's this list that you need to follow if you're going to continue to be a follower of Jesus. 
They, like many today, were saying that your standing with God is most clearly defined by what you do, how you act, or where you come from. So again, Paul in this text is going to address that lie. He's going to speak to his own confidence and show us the futility of finding our confidence in anything, in anyone other than Jesus. So look with me at verse 4. Paul picks up in verse 4 by speaking to these false teachers in the church and in essence is saying, let's compare resumes, all right? Me and mine, you and yours, let's pick teams, We'll compare resumes. Look at what I've done. Look at what you've done. Paul's sort of trash-talking them and saying, all right, we're going to talk about confidence. Like, let's go. I will crush you. All right? So Paul talks about two areas of confidence that he has in these first few verses. So first, if you're taking notes, Paul talks about his background. Paul talks about his background. In verse 5, Paul says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. So in the Torah, which is the first five books of our Old Testament, uh, this was sort of the code of conduct for any Hebrew, any Jew, and it commanded that parents circumcise their firstborn son on the eighth day. So Paul here, right at the beginning, is saying, my parents were incredible. My resume, amazing. They took me to synagogue. I did Sabbath. I was in church all the time. Like, I was a good kid. I feared God. Like, I I come from a really good family. Like, trust me, my parents, they're legit. He goes on to say, I am of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this word people is where we get our word genealogy. So Paul continues by saying, not only are my parents great, but the parents before them were great. Paul was actually one of the only Jews, his family tree was one of the only Jews who could trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. So Paul is saying, man, not just my family, but like my whole family tree is pristine. I am a pure blood. But not only did he come from a great family, but he also had a great education. Paul said that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So the education in first century Israel uh, had three levels. The first was kind of like a grade school. Second was kind of like high school. And then if you were the best of the best of the best, you got into a third level, which was called the Talmudim. Now this level was for the elite of the elite. These are your rogue scholars. These are your uh, smartest kids. They're getting scholarships to everywhere. In order to be part of a Talmudin, first you had to be a man. Second of all, you had to have a perfect track record. You had to come from a perfect family. You had to show amazing promise and potential. So this was a really prestigious thing. It wasn't just something that anybody could get into. Like Paul's saying, my education was the best of the best. In fact, in Acts 23, Paul talks about how he studied under one of the most prestigious and elite rabbis of his time. So Paul is saying, man, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. If there's anyone who comes, who could find their confidence, their identity, and their education, the things that they've done, it's me. So first, Paul talked about his confidence in his background. But secondly, Paul talked about his behavior, He says in verse 5, as to the law of Pharisee, 
Again, he's speaking to the Torah. The Pharisees were a group of religious rulers. They were sort of the religious police officers of the day, making sure that everybody was following the rules, everybody was doing what they were supposed to, calling out sin here and sin there, making sure everyone was following the things the way that they should. Nobody was out of line. And Paul is saying, that was me. I was OCD about keeping the rules. Everything was right. I did it all by the Bible. My confidence in my flesh, what I had done, pristine, perfect. He goes on in verse six to say, zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now zeal, uh, another way that can be translated is incredible religious dedication. So Matt, a few weeks ago, he actually brought up the zealots, if you remember that. But the zealots were this armed group of insurgents, and they hated the Roman Empire. So what they would do is they would carry daggers either on their thigh or strapped to their ankle, and they would go into mobs and crowds, and their goal was to kill and murder Roman officials because they hated the government, and they wanted to see the whole thing burn. So they would go, they would find an official, cut his throat, dive back into the, into the crowd so nobody knew. They had incredible zeal and passion to bring down this Roman government. And Paul is saying, I wasn't a zealot per se, but I was zealous. That same passion and desire that they had to kill Romans, I channeled that against the church. So you, you want to talk about passion? Let's compare resumes like, I'm a persecutor of the church. There is no one more passionate than I am. Paul wraps up his religious resume by talking about his righteousness under the law. And he says that he was blameless. Now Paul isn't saying that he's sinless, but rather that he's innocent. If you've been in church a while, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that in the Old Testament, the way to deal with your sins was through sacrifice. And Paul is saying, My sacrifice game is untouchable. No one can compare with what I've done with my sacrifices. Like my slate is clean, I am perfect. Now some of you here today, I'm sure, would say, I'm I'm a pretty good person, I've done okay. My background uh, is pretty good. My behavior is probably better even than my background. Like God should be pleased with what I've done and who I am and what I've accomplished and maybe some of the things I haven't done in my life, that should give me a sense of status. Uh, My reputation, not only with God, with others, should be fine because of who I am, what I've done, my achievements, my education, my background, my behavior. Paul's message to his church here and our message this morning as the same as it was Then, if anyone could have confidence in who they are, what they've done, it's Paul. And what does he say? In verse 7, Paul switches gears and he says this. Look with me at verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, Paul here is using an accounting metaphor. Any accountants in the room? Anybody? Yeah, put them up. Be firm, sure. No? Okay, no. Susan, I think you're here. Susan's an accountant. This one's for you, Susan. But imagine 
you have two sides of a ledger, right? On one side, you have your gains, and on one side, you have your losses. So your gains are your profits. Those are the things uh, that you have, that your resume, that you're proud of. These are your religious accomplishments. For Paul, this was his reputation. This was his background, uh, that which gave him status and success. And the people around him looked at him and was like, wow, Paul. That's pretty good. So you have your gains on one side, and on the other side, you have your losses, right? These are things that maybe you misjudged, or you overlooked, or you underestimated. These these are things that naturally you'd be like, all right, I don't want to really talk about my losses, my weakness. Let me look at my gains. Let me look at those things which give me success. When people look at me, they would say, wow, look at what they've done. Paul says that in the kingdom of God, in life following Jesus, our resume is completely backwards. It's upside down. Paul takes his column of confidence in the flesh, those things that he's done and accomplished, his background, his behavior. He takes those things from his gains column and he puts them in his losses column. Now this begs the question, why would he do that? And why does he call us to do that? That doesn't make any sense, right? In the culture of Vancouver, the kingdom of the world, that makes no sense. You would would not want to take your gains and put them in your losses column. Why would he do that? Before we answer that, I want to ask you this morning, what is in your gains column? What defines you? What are you putting your identity in? Is it a background Is it a behavior? Is it something that you have done? Something that you haven't done? Maybe what is your confidence in this morning? Some of you, your confidence is in your job. High paying job, you're well respected by your colleagues, maybe your employees, and your confidence is in who you are, what you've accomplished in your business or education, Some of you, it's your success at work. It's how much money you have or the car you drive, where you live, what your address is. Others of you maybe find your confidence in a relationship and the way you have treated somebody or haven't treated somebody. I see this all the time in youth ministry that parents have their confidence in their kids And so they put all this pressure and weight on their kids to perform and get perfect grades and be involved in every extracurricular activity under the sun because people need to look at me and say, I'm a good parent. Look at my kids. Look how awesome they are. They're on the right track. And so they put all this pressure. Their confidence is actually in their kids and it's debilitating and it's crushing to them. For others of us, our confidence is completely wrapped up in what other people think about us, our reputation, What do people think about when they look at me, when they think of me? So this guides what we post on social media and what we wear and who we hang out with and what we do with our holiday time and our Christmas bonuses is completely wrapped up in who we are, what we've done. When people look at me, what do they think? That's the essence of a selfie culture, right? You don't take a selfie culture to tell everybody how terrible you are. You literally post it to get likes from people so that people can like you and approve you and say, wow, you went there, you wore this, you hang out with them, you have an extravagant life. Man, I wish I could be as cool as you or as beautiful or successful or wealthy 
as respected as you are. Maybe some of you uh, here this morning, you can resonate with Paul here, where his religious resume was really good. Maybe you come from a great family, you grew up in the church, uh, you grew up going to Sunday school, and you've kind of followed all the rules your whole life. That was me. Uh, My dad was a pastor pretty much my whole life. I grew up in church. I read my Bible every day. I was in Iwana, went to a public school, and I graduated a virgin. So I was like, whoa, (laughs) religious resume? Come on, Paul, right? But that's how some of us see ourselves. By looking at who we are, what we've done, can we claim that we're better than other people? That I, I am somehow, I've earned my favor with God because I haven't done this or have done that. Maybe some of you fall into that category. Maybe some of you this morning would say, I actually have no confidence. I don't know what my confidence is in. Maybe you come from a broken family. Maybe you're divorced. Uh, maybe you have a mental health issue. Maybe you come from a string of broken relationships and your spiritual resume is a disaster. You would never show anyone your resume for fear of what they would think about you. Maybe you're like Moses, right? If, if you remember our series in Exodus, we talked about Moses. Uh, Moses, given away as a kid, grew up in a family, murdered a guy, ran away, spent 40 years working in no man's land as a shepherd, and God comes to him and says, I have one of the greatest tasks in all of human history for you. And what does Moses say? I got you, God. Like, you picked the right guy. I'm your man. Look at my resume. No, Moses is like, uh, I have a stuttering problem. The Jews hate me. My brother wants to kill me. No thanks. Look at my resume. And some of you may find yourself there this morning. You look at your life, what you've done. You you see regret. You see broken relationships. And you, you have no confidence in your flesh. You can't relate with Paul at all. So again, my question, what is in your gains column? What do you put your confidence in? Paul understood that following Jesus means that anything that we can accomplish or achieve or do or be outside of Jesus Christ is actually a loss. It's nothing. And actually, he goes on to say it's, it's worse than nothing. So happy New Year's, Paul. He goes on in verse 8. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, rubbish, not a word that we use very often, but can be translated trash or garbage, manure, uh, kitchen scraps. Uh, This is the uh, first century equivalent of a word that we can't really say on stage here at Westside. This is not a good thing. Paul is not saying like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. In Greek, this word is skubalon, which Literally, it sounds disgusting, okay? If my son hadn't scubaloned all over the floor, it would, you would not be blowing kisses, okay? Our achievements, our accomplishments, even good things outside of Jesus are garbage. They are scubalon. But why does Paul do this? Why does he call us to do the same? Why would this ever make sense in the economy of our world? Well, he tells us in verse 8, in order that I may gain 
Christ. We actually gain Jesus by looking to his accomplishments and his life and his death and his resurrection in our place for us. Paul encourages the Philippians and us here this morning that to put all of those things in our losses column as we forget them, we actually gain Jesus. It's not, it's not some poverty gospel where you throw that away. No, you throw that away in order that the reason is because you gain Jesus. And what does it mean to gain Jesus? Well, there's tons. We could spend our whole life looking at ways that we gain Jesus, but Paul gives us two here in these verses. Two ways we gain Jesus when we put our confidence and our faith in him. Look with me at verse nine. Paul writes this, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the first way that we gain Jesus is being found in Jesus. Being found in Jesus. This is the essence of the gospel. That we do not have a righteousness of our own that comes from the law. Meaning there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There's no good work. There's no religious resume. There's no background. There's no behavior that we could do to save ourselves. Ourselves. All of our efforts to gain approval and identity and acceptance outside of the finished work of Jesus in our place for our sins is worthless. It's scubalon. Our faith in Jesus is what saves us, nothing else. Paul makes this point in Ephesians 2 when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's not something you've done. It's not your background, your behavior, your family, your education. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our faith in Jesus and the finished work of his life, death, and resurrection makes us one with Christ. In theology, this is called our union with Christ, meaning that we are one with him. We are part of his family. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When we count our gains column as loss, we gain Christ and are found in him. But some of us this morning, I would argue, uh, we've become so accustomed to the kingdom of Vancouver and the culture that we live in that if we had a preference, we'd rather not be found in Jesus. We'd rather be found as successful, important, prominent, beautiful. We want to be found to be what we want to be. What makes us look good? What are the things that I can contribute in order for people to look at me and say, man, that person's made something of themselves. Paul says in Romans 3 that the law, this way of living, actually brings forth death. In Romans 3, he says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So our confidence in being a good person and following the rules and being known as this type of person or that type of person outside of Jesus 
brings forth death. But when we find our confidence in the person and work of Jesus, we gain Christ and are found in him. And when you're found in Jesus, nothing can separate you from God's love. Not divorce, not sickness, not loneliness or anxiety or failure. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. But not only are we found in Jesus, but Paul goes on to say that we gain Jesus by knowing Jesus. Now Paul uses a word here uh, to know that's translated in the aorist, active, indicative, which I promise you is the most exciting thing that you'll hear all day, right? But this is important. We don't have this verb tense in English, but this carries the idea of an action that took place in the past, but continues to take place today and will continue to take place on into the future. So Paul is saying that knowing Jesus, gaining Jesus, is not just something that happened in your past. It's not a one-time decision that you made at a bonfire when you were a kid, and then like, you're good. I know Jesus. I'm good to go. No, knowing Jesus is something that happens in the past and something that continues to happen all the way through our life. And we know this. We know what it means to know someone in life and not just know about somebody, but truly know them. It means that you're united with them, that you share in the joys and the struggles and the pains of life. What is incredible about the gospel is that when our confidence is in Jesus, we actually know him. We know the one who considered his gains column as loss. He left his throne to come and live and die among us. Jesus set aside his back. Look, I mean, Isaiah 6. You want a background to set aside? Listen to this. Listen to what Isaiah says. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. But my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what Jesus left to save us, to live among us, and ultimately to die for us, for a people that would ultimately reject him. This, West Side friends, visitors, this is the Jesus that we know. But there is cost in knowing someone, right? You, you walk alongside them, you carry what they carry. To know Christ, Paul says in verse 10, is to participate in his sufferings. Because those of us who identify with Jesus will receive the same treatment that he did. Jesus makes that clear. John 16 Other parts of scripture, when we identify with Jesus, we share in his sufferings. And what did they do to Jesus? 
They murdered him. And when we know Jesus, we share in his suffering. We risk our reputation, we forfeit our agenda, and we reject our selfish desire for popularity and acceptance from others, knowing that when we count our gains as our losses, our gains as losses, we see Jesus. But again, why would we do that? Where is the hope in this? Well, Jesus' suffering was followed by his resurrection. In the same way, our suffering will ultimately end in resurrection. In Romans 8, Paul writes that as co-heirs with Christ, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Gaining Jesus means that we are first found in Jesus and secondly, that we know Jesus. Westside, that is our confidence. When we count our background, our behavior as garbage, as loss, we in turn gain Christ. And we can say with the Scottish pastor and hymn writer, Edmund Mote, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood, they support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So what does all this mean for us as we enter this new year? 31st, tomorrow's a new year, new diets, new trips to the gym, better hydration, less time on social media, less Netflix, going to exercise more, right? What does this mean for us as we enter 2018? Well, two questions for us to consider as we close. First, What is your confidence in this morning? What's your identity in? What is that thing that if taken away from you would cause you to not want to live anymore? What is that in your life? Can you with Paul say, man, I count all of that as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. Secondly, how can you put those things outside of the finished work of Jesus in your losses column and in so doing, gain Christ. So let me close this morning the way that Paul closes in our text. Look with me, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul writes this. Not that I have already obtained this or an already perfect, but I press on to make it my own Because Christ Jesus has made me his own.
Let's pray together. Jesus, we come before you humbly knowing that uh, we, we have nothing good to bring to the table. Our behavior uh, and our background uh, are garbage. Uh, and, and we humbly uh, come before you knowing that our faith in you is what saves us. You are our confidence. You are our hope, our peace this morning. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would rest heavy on us as we respond uh, those of us who, who love Jesus, serve Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you, can, you would continue to make us more like Jesus, that we would find our confidence in him. Those of us uh, who don't know you, Jesus, I pray that by your grace and through your spirit, you would convict, your kindness would lead to repentance this morning, and that their confidence would also be found in you. So Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray. Amen.